Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factory, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode four of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. I'm really excited to have my uh, friend and uh, occasional collaborator, Marion Stern, on the show today. Uh, Marion is a consultant, uh, a former uh, professor at the NYU School of Philanthropy. Um, she provides services to nonprofits uh, around fundraising, strategic planning, board governance, and development. Um, she also advises foundations on grant making. We're going to talk to her a bit about that today and specifically in terms of the response to COVID-19 and how nonprofits are reacting, how foundations are reacting. Um, I don't want to delay any further because there's so much I'd really like to talk to her about. So without any further ado, let's get Marion onto the show. Hi, Boris. Hi, Marion. How are you today? Good. Good. Thank you. And you? I am doing all right. All things considered, doing great. Yeah. So um, thank you so much, first of all, for coming on the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, you and I have worked on a, a few projects together at this point, and I honestly always learn a lot from you. So I'm really happy to bring you on the show and help uh, more people learn a lot from you. Um, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit, uh, since I'm so focused on storytelling, tell me a little bit of your story, Marian. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, certainly I've, I've been in this business for decades, uh, uh, both as a grant maker way back uh, several decades ago, and then um, owning my own firm, which is called Projects and Philanthropy. And I work with public charities, as you indicated in uh, the intro. I do a lot of fundraising planning. I like to work on strategy, uh, et cetera. Uh, recently, uh, during COVID, uh, my work has has changed a bit and has also accelerated. Uh, uh, a lot of nonprofits initially were very concerned about events. That seemed to be the biggest problem. Once they were able to go virtual with their services, um, then almost every nonprofit I've worked with had something scheduled for April, May, or June. And those events either had to be postponed or canceled, had to go virtual, some converted to emergency campaigns. So that was the initial shock in the system of nonprofits and what to do about that. Um, and I've seen everything. They, I've seen people postpone them. I've, I've worked with uh, nonprofits who have gone virtual. Um, I also feel in some respects the, the best tactic for many of them were emergency campaigns in lieu of events. And if you want to know, I can tell you a little bit more about that. Um, then the next phase of my work with nonprofits is, okay, what do we do now? And uh, Boris, I think you know me well enough that I tend to believe in the real deep best practices of fundraising, which is to work with the donors who know you best. So for many of the organizations, we really emphasize going back to major donors, explaining to them new needs that may have resulted from the crisis, either lost revenue if you had earned revenue as a nonprofit or uh, other grants that might go away and work with those major donors to see if they could help you. And they'll also ask them to help you in your asking for others. Uh, we've developed emergency campaigns. I, we've also learned, and I learned this uh, actually with you, Boris, on another broadcast uh, from Tracy at the Foundation Center, that institutional donors really want to help now. And most foundations and corporate giving programs have removed many of the barriers for communication with nonprofits and also uh, 
they want to get money out the door very quickly. So that's what I've been doing on the on the advice side. The next phase I, I'm seeing a lot of nonprofits begin to grapple with is many have um, uh, fiscal year ends of June 30. And maybe a lot of them have brought in a good amount of money in the past couple of months or earlier in the fiscal year, they did very well in their annual campaigns, their earlier events, et cetera. And now all of a sudden the new fiscal year is looming and they're very worried about revenue production uh, beginning July 1. Uh, there's a whole lot to unpack there. I know I want to I come know. back to I'll all of it. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. That, that that's uh, awesome stuff. Um, just for the for the record, Tracy's actually going to be on the show next week. So next Thursday, Tracy now yeah. from Candid. Um, when when we knew her, well, sorry, first I met her, she was the Foundation Center, and now it's now it's uh, Foundation Center has merged with um, um was it? Sorry, uh, uh, wasn't it Guidestar? Yes, Guidestar exactly. Guidestar. And now they are Candid. Um, so. Um, I guess uh, I, what what I love to do is really break things down and and help uh, audiences understand um, you know as much as possible things that they could do things that they should be looking out for and um, and implementing these days. Uh, totally agree that the initial uh, mad rush was what do we do? How do we fill our budget uh, uh, our budget gaps if we don't do our uh, online uh, our um, in-person events, our major galas, a lot of nonprofits, their fiscal year end is in the summer. And um, several uh, that I spoke to were really worried about it. And then um, they slowly figured out uh, with advice from people like yourself uh, and, and me and other uh, pros out there, uh, how to take those events, put them up on, online instead, really make a call to action around the fact that this is an emergency situation. And um, as much as I rail against it, uh, against using the term, but put it in terms of now more than ever, <laughs> we need to, we need your that help. A little, few too many times recently. Yeah, it just gets a little much in my inbox, but um, yeah, and and they've a lot of them have successfully now pivoted and started offering their programming online. And um, uh, actually, one organization that uh, that I'm uh, in regular contact with actually uh, raised more money this year. Uh, based on everything that's going on, you know, they uh, now have a surplus and their concern is actually for next year at this point, you know, if they can't resume their regular operations, what are they going to do then? Before we even get there though, tell me a little bit, um, I know that you're currently working with a relief fund. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing there. What, uh, what are the big things that nonprofits are uh, feeling the challenge uh, with mm -hmm. And uh, what are the responses that uh, you, you're helping yeah. put out? Okay, so I, I was fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to be asked to serve as a grant, uh, a proposal reviewer for the New Jersey Pandemic Relief Fund, which was started by uh, uh, Governor Murphy's wife. I forget her first name uh, right now, forgive me. Um, along with most of the major foundations in New Jersey who pulled funds. And then they had that, uh, they had a telethon that Springsteen and Bon Jovi were on and they raised money. Um, it's been very interesting. They received many more proposals than they expected from a whole spectrum of organizations, from the largest in the state to very grassroots kind of church-based uh, uh, organizations or soup kitchens, things like that. Uh, the priority of the um, fund right now is to get money out the door for immediate relief, food, health care, safety, those kinds of issues. Um, and what I'm seeing is that the response by nonprofits in New Jersey has been really formidable. Again, from the smallest soup kitchen that is has 
now request for triple or quadruple the number of food packages or meals um, to larger or to the food banks. Uh, so it's been very uh, rewarding uh, to see how the state uh, has, how the nonprofits in the state have really rallied. And for those of you who are out there, I can't, please don't reach out to me about this because I, not that I wouldn't love to hear from you and people can reach out to me for anything, but I can't help you in, in the review process. I'm just helping to, re to review the grants. The board makes the final decisions. <sighs> Sorry, I had to do that disclosure. No, absolutely. I, I understand. Um, that said, though, <laughs> wow. um, what are you... Uh, what are the things that you're you're seeing in applications that are helping people actually get those grants? What what are the uh, key points or stories that that you're, yeah, you're reading? Yeah, you know, I don't. I can't really serve as an official spokesman on behalf of the relief fund because they have they have those people, Tammy Murphy and others. Uh, again, and I'm seeing this with other foundations that I've spoken with. So I'd like to make this a more universal kind of assessment. Um, I'm also a member of a large women's giving circle in New York City, uh, which is associated with the New York Community Trust, and which has also started a very, very large emergency fund. I'm seeing probably a hierarchy among institutional donors now, which is immediate relief for those who have family members or they themselves are sick, people who've lost their jobs and wages, People are going hungry, people who feel that um, they don't have sufficient funds to pay their mortgage or their rent. Um, so working with organizations that basically serve the most vulnerable populations. And I'm seeing that. And I think Tracy will confirm this next week. And I think all institutional donors um, going forward are like nonprofits saying, OK, we got through this really quick emergency period. It was very, very intense. But now there are going to be issues of sustainability. And I think that's what nonprofits need to think about in terms of their appeals and who they go to for what, and also institutionals, or and for that matter, personal uh, individuals who give away money. What, where can they make that difference um, in this area of sustainability? Because the next year is going to be maybe longer, will be extremely challenging in serving people because of the unemployment numbers. Right. So right now we're looking at essentially Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And and the things that yeah. are most core to, to our, our survival, which is shelter, food, safety, right? Before we could get yeah. to the other things. Um, yeah. And I understand that's where a lot of grant giving organizations are, are focusing right now, because those are perhaps uh, identifiably the most pressing needs. But we do... Um, even though it's framed as a hierarchy, we do actually need all of the things on, on that pyramid um, that, that Maslow uh, formulated, including community, including um, uh, a sense of self and, and self-worth. Um, so what are we... What are we advising nonprofits that maybe are not dealing with, you know, can you pay your yeah. rent uh, th this month and do you have food on the table, but are still really providing essential services to their communities? This to me is really the ex existential question for, for now through at least the next six months. And, and I'm even thinking about arts organizations and where they fit into this into this larger sphere. Um, first of all, what I've been advising my clients right now is that in many cases, I, and I never understood this why, there was the finance committee on their board and then there's the development committee. And the finance committee creates, creates the budget and then the development committee is responsible for seeing that the 
the fundraising or the uh, unearned revenue side of the budget is fulfilled. Well, right now, I am suggesting that development, your development board and staff and your finance board and staff work together in a team to do projections for next year's budgets. And I'm saying do a, you know, optimistic, less optimistic and pessimistic versions, three versions of next year's budget on both the revenue and expense side, uh, because it's just too hard to predict right now. Um, expenses are probably a little easier to predict, but on the revenue side, it is extremely difficult to predict what's going to go on. So I think that holistic approach to planning for next year is essential, uh, first of all. Secondly, I always advise uh, organizations, do not uh, do not disassociate yourself with your mission. If you are in an arts organization or you're if, an, if you're an education organization and you haven't been in the front line of getting grants, that doesn't mean now that you want to pivot completely and become something you're not. What I've been suggesting is that you stay true to your mission, but then you create an additional value proposition. Why now and going forward, your organization needs assistance to be to help sustain individuals or the or the larger community. We know, for example, that arts organizations, when they enter a community, they are usually the first revitalizers of a depressed community because artists will come in, they'll they'll, they'll they need the low rents, et cetera. They begin bringing people into communities, whether they're coming to view a theater or visual arts or music, and they revitalize the community. Well, arts organizations will play a very important role, I believe, in the next six months, and potentially if they have the funds, hiring people. You know, most unemployed actors are waiters. So they're getting no revenue right now. So that's, that's an example uh, of how a nonprofit can create this value proposition that I think will help with funders. Again, always go back to the funders who know and love you best first. But education organizations, we don't know what is happening yet with schools in the fall. Either, you know, primary and secondary schools, a lot of universities are still have not announced what they're doing. I'm particularly concerned about uh, low-income children preschool age who have been in state-funded daycare centers or philanthropy-funded daycare centers, they have been getting no socialization, no education. Their parents are probably still frontline workers working in supermarkets or in Home Depot. And I think that's another area that education organizations might want to think about. If they are primarily elementary school, can they possibly do something jointly with the preschool where their services could be more holistic and maybe more attractive to a larger swath of donors? Uh, on everything you said there, um, starting with um, there is a, a need to innovate within your organization, within your mission at this time, but it has to stay true to the mission. You don't want to lose your your funders. You don't want to lose your community because suddenly you see uh, an opportunity right um, in the for profit and startup worlds. You know, we talk about pivoting, right? An organ, uh, a company might pivot. Well, a pivot is fine, but a, a huge turn might lose everybody that it, that it has been serving in the past, and it might strike a chord of dissonance, dissonance, right, with with your existing supporters. They might suddenly say, "Well, this is not what I signed up for. This is not right. why I'm giving exactly. monthly." But finding new ways to serve your communities during this time absolutely critical. I've seen uh, many uh, organizations 
do it successfully at this point with either uh, digital services, you know, online services, or even you know, food delivery services, wh whatever it might be. Asking their communities, what do you need right now, and how can we help get it to you? And then turning around and saying, hey, here's what we're doing. Here are the programs we're launching. Can you, our supporters, our champions, help us uh, to to fund this type of programming so that we could keep serving these needs? Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned digital because I've been speaking with nonprofits who are going again to their closest donors and saying, we need money to invest in better technology because not only will our fundraising go more digital, our provision of services is going to be more digital. You know, telehealth, this is not going to go backwards. This is going to stay. This is going to continue in the future. So I also have been suggesting to, to nonprofits that now that the flurry for some of them is a little bit over and there's a little bit more stasis there, that this is an excellent time to talk with their boards about really looking, taking a strategic look at what their future will look like. Um, I heard a, story, a great story from a Jewish Family Service Agency up in Boston, which had a gala in some fancy hotel in Boston. It raised almost somewhere between a million and two million dollars. Well, they had to cancel it. And she said for the first time, her board is saying, wait a minute, maybe we should invest more and hire a, another major gift officer because these people are going to need to be calling on virtually or eventually in person, our major donors, working with them, helping them to helping them to understand what we're doing so they'll support new initiatives and whatever. So having that, taking the time or giving yourself the luxury of having those conversations now I, I think is not really a luxury. I think it's essential for planning for the future. Absolutely. Um, and the, uh, the appeal to helping low-income uh, folks that nonprofits may have already been helping um, but are now needing to help even more, uh, putting that out. I've seen that come back in spades where uh, people who, without any uh, request, without any sort of uh, major campaign, have just come onto websites and said, I love what you're doing. Thank you for serving my community. I care about this community. And here's just a donation. Some have become recurring donors, some one-time donors. Of course, if they're yeah. just one time, your job is to now nurture them into recurring yeah, right. donors. Uh, don't 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 lose out on the opportunity, I guess, to uh, create true supporters rather than just one-time givers uh, out of the the crisis. People who recognize your value, you you should be able to prove that value going forward as well, right? To really yeah, and, and Boris, I think that's really where your emphasis on storytelling makes the most sense because we know that some donors are more data-driven, and we've talked about this before, more data-driven, they want to see the numbers. But right now during COVID, most, and I, I, I've been watching this closely, donors are motivated much more on the personal stories, uh, on, on how a social worker in a, in a human services agency made the effort because a senior didn't answer her phone that got in her car and knocked on the window to make sure that the person was okay. And those kinds of stories right now, I believe, are driving donors generally for small gifts. But as you said, then it's our job as fundraisers to convert them to long-term supporters. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we got to drive that, um, drive that oxytocin, uh, give that, that, that feedback loop of yeah. we're doing something, we're getting feedback on it. Um, we're, we're collecting our stories, we're resharing our stories, those stories then in turn, um, 
generate additional uh, additional supporters, which then generate uh, hopefully new stories, right? And, and right, keep right. That cycle going until right. you know you've served every person you possibly can in your community, which uh, I know yeah. is yeah. usually yeah. a, a and, and 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 obviously capturing as much as you can on video. I think people are 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 tired of screen time, but I think they're tired of re. I, I know I'm just reading constantly on my screen, but a short video with a moving story that doesn't feel manipulative or disingenuous, that is really true, um, can really go a long way. Absolutely, video is is amazing for, for this, because uh, that just, the, the whole uh, driver behind storytelling is a connection from person to person, is our ability to put ourselves in the shoes of another person, we can't even help it. When someone tells a story, we imagine ourselves in it, um, but to actually see the person and to create that connection, to create that empathy, that's going to uh, drive the results much, much faster. But absolutely, authenticity has to be key. It yeah. can't be manufactured. It can't be put on people. Um, we have pretty strong um, uh, BS detectors, if you yeah. will, <laughs> when, when it comes to those things. And as soon yeah. as we even get a hint yeah. of it, we feel if we feel like we're being manipulated, we instantly turn it off because there's a million other things pulling for our focus, pulling for our dollars, right? So always err on the side of too little and, and authentic than right, too right. much and, and, um, and, and disingenuous. Absolutely. Um, you know, you know, the research I've done on uh, donor motivation, I've done a fair amount of research on that show, particularly with um, larger donors, what we would consider major donors. They're driven really by two uh, very important factors or the hierarchy of factors are really two. One is to make a difference to make a deep difference. And the other is gratitude. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time in history that we, anybody who has not been impacted directly by the virus can feel gratitude. In other crises, um, we haven't felt that same sense of empathy because we wouldn't necessarily be impacted by it. So when Katrina took place, for example, or Superstorm Sandy here in the Northeast, uh, people around the country felt badly for those being impacted, but they didn't necessarily feel the same empathy because the geographic distance yep. prevented some of that. Yeah. This situation is unprecedented because every single one of us can be in the same place. So yeah. the concept of empathy and also belonging in a nonprofit that you, pri uh, previous donor or potential donor, you were really one of us. Yeah. You help us. You are helping us. Even let's say you're a scholarship organization. I've been working one with very, very closely, of which their recipients are very low income uh, uh, students. And the message has been: every time you donate us, you are one of us, making sure that this young woman can get a laptop at home so she can finish school this semester. Yeah, and that's been, uh, I think, also again, authentic and very compelling. And um, not to plug myself too much here, but um, that's why this is called the nonprofit okay. hero factory, right? We want to yeah, create right, right. heroes. We want to make people feel like heroes. That's that's that gratitude and that's that feeling of impact, yeah. right? Um, so closing that story loop and making someone feel like a hero to someone else. And also like you're empowering that person that you just gave that laptop to, that you just sponsored that laptop yeah. to, to become a hero yeah. in their own lives, right? So it's it's a yeah. double effect and it's so powerful. Yeah, I think a great message from a nonprofit right now is if you're going outside as much as possible and you're wearing a mask 
and you're doing social distancing, you are a hero because you are helping to protect anybody else who you would encounter when you're outside your home space. And then you can just add to that heroism of the average situation, which is, and when you support your community for people who, you know, have more difficulty practicing social distancing because they live in a walk-up tenement in New York City and they're constantly passing people in the stairwell or whatever, and you're making sure that they get the assistance that they need, whatever it might be, um, that just adds to your heroism. Absolutely. Um, so we talked a, a little bit about uh, grants and, and applications and, and the, 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 the ones getting the most attention from foundations right now are the ones that are fulfilling the most direst of, of needs. Um, what are some other resources, though, that uh, most nonprofits might be able to take advantage of? Do you have any that you recommend uh, things that nonprofits can be doing right now or taking advantage of? Yeah. Um... Well, in addition to trying to develop this uh, special new value proposition, uh, certainly nonprofits that have not been deploying social media need to do it more than ever. Uh, and it doesn't have to be particularly professional looking. I think everybody in some respects has lowered their standards a little bit on what's being produced out there. I mean, I'm just looking at my hair right now, what everybody looks like. Um, so so definitely get your message out on social media. Uh, secondly. Um, as states start to open up, one of the things um, I've been sort of brainstorming with, with organizations is the concept of some in-person gatherings. I think big events, I, I would say for the next 12 months, don't even consider a large event. It's just not worth the time and the anxiety that it's going to cause. Um, but we're, we've been talking about small parlor meetings which are generally not ask meetings. They are donor stewardship meetings. They're education meetings in someone's home, somebody who has a large home, let's say, or a large apartment. You invite very few people, 45 minutes so that the exposure is limited and you you create it so that people don't have to be on top of one another. But for two reasons. One is to get your message out again in a smaller, more intimate setting where people will feel that it's being directed to them individually. And secondly, to say thank you. But I'm not sure if that was your question. Was your question like what resources were out there? Yeah, but although that was great. Those were a great uh, strategy yeah, that, yeah. that nonprofits should be yeah. considering. So thank you for sharing that. But yeah, are yeah. there specific resources that you think more organizations should be taking advantage of or looking into? Well, you know, I think it's it would be helpful for nonprofits to just see what the general trends are out there, uh, whether uh, uh, donations are going up or down, um, uh, and getting an overview lar much larger than what you and I are doing here right now, Bar. So, you know, I'm an avid reader of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. They have been following um, philanthropy nationally very closely um, recently. Secondly. I know what you want me to say, Boris, based on our earlier conversation. Secondly, reach out to past providers. If you've used marketing firms, if you've used consultants uh, with your fundraising, board governance, whatever, I um, am finding, and I'm doing this myself, that virtually all of my colleagues are providing some pro bono help right now. Uh, it might be a one-off, one-hour conversation, so you can say, Are, is what we're doing right? Do you have any new ideas? Um, it could be reduced rates. It could be a longer-term relationship. But I see on my LinkedIn page, and just by talking with colleagues, and Boris and I are both doing this, that um, 
those of us who work in the nonprofit space are the first, I think, who are likely to say, hey, we're in this together. We want to help you. So um, uh, people can reach out to me if they'd like. I've been giving um, a couple of organizations have asked me to be part of a team that's giving free one hours and then negotiating with uh, clients for some uh, low, low cost assistance. Um, so that's a great resource right now. I remember when uh, this first started, uh, when we first began the the big waves of lockdowns and things, um, I had sent out a, a newsletter uh, saying, you know, I'm offering free consultation. Yeah. And if somebody needs a pop up on their website or some kind of alert or something uh, to just let me know. And, and, and I'm doing it free. And you were one of the first people like within minutes of that newsletter, yeah. you responded saying, this is amazing. I'm doing the same thing. Um, this this is Totally. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. I forgot. That's, yeah. But I know I have a, a Crackerjack uh, prospect researcher who I work with a lot. She just put on her LinkedIn page. She wants to help. I know capital camp, you know, capital campaigns now. This is this is a complex issue. I think they should continue and I think they can be um, they can be successful, but it is more complicated. So I know capital campaign specialists who are giving some free support. Um yeah, and marketing and marketing people. Also, I've noticed that a number of marketing firms um, that uh, do a lot of work in the nonprofit space have been putting a lot on their websites. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, like what you're doing, posting um, recordings of discussions about how to market right now. Um, I've been putting a lot of PowerPoints up on my LinkedIn site about best practices and a lot of what we talked about today. So if you are aware of uh, consulting firms and, and you know, competition, but they're a zillion times bigger than I am. CCS, which is probably the largest uh, consultancy in the nonprofit, in the fundraising space in the world, their their um, website has a ton of free content on it right now. And um, yeah, so they're, they're, people do want to help. Yeah. Absolutely. And I really appreciate the time even uh, that you're taking today, Marion. Um, uh, I know that you provide a lot of value all the time on, on LinkedIn. Um, we're going to have that link in the show notes today, okay. as well as the links to uh, the Chronicles of, of Philanthropy and some of the other uh, resources that, that you mentioned. Um, I encourage all our uh, viewers and listeners to go check them out and, and take advantage as much as yeah. possible. Um, so you might want to link bars then if I can to CCS. CCS yeah. fundraising consultancy and also Big Duck is a marketing firm in Brooklyn. You know Big Duck. They do brilliant work and they have been running a lot of um, seminars. And I'm yeah. sure that they're living on their website now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we'll definitely link to all of those yeah. and um, encourage people to connect with Marion to uh, get in touch and maybe she could offer some some free uh, consulting uh, there as well. Um, always conscious of your time, uh, which I know Fine. you're spread really thin these days. So I, I don't want to I don't want to mob you with, with with requests, but I'm sure people are going to be. I don't have any young children at home, so I don't have to deal with, you know, for people with young children. It's been so challenging. So a little bit. Fine. <laughs> I wish my grandson were here, but sadly he's not. Yeah, it's it's both a blessing and um, yeah. challenge, let's call it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again so much, Marion. Uh, I you, really Mark. appreciate you. I know we'll be talking more uh, soon. Uh, I'll have you back on the show, hopefully talking about something other than pandemic response in the very yeah. future. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks, Boris. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. All right.
Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you again, Marion. Uh, definitely check out the show notes. If you go to nphero.factory.com, you'll see all of the different shows. This was episode number four with Marion Stern. Um, we'll have all the resources and uh, the transcript, everything all linked up there, including the video if you want to watch the replay later on or share it with friends. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Stay sane, everybody, whether you have kids at home, a new puppy or not. Um, we're all in this together, and uh, I know the path forward is going to be a little challenging, but we're definitely can, we definitely can and will get through it stronger as a community. Thanks for everything you do.